Welcome to Paper Boys, the weekly podcast where we dive into the research behind headline science news. I'm your host, James. And I'm your other host, Charlie. Are you ever reading about science in the news and thinking, there's got to be more to this? Well, every Thursday, James and I go to the actual research behind these stories, and we give you all the details that you can't really get in the news. James, what are you going to be talking about today on the episode? Well, Charlie, this week, I have an exciting paper that you've probably seen in the news about the largest synthetic genome ever created. Okay, I have not seen this in the news, and I don't even know what synthetic genome means. And it's like many of your paper topics, I can't decide if I'm fascinated or terrified. So Uh, in this case, you should probably be a little bit of both. Mostly just fascinated, but it's a really interesting story about this E. coli bacteria with a completely man-made genome. So it'll be fun to dive into the details. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. For anyone who's tuning in for the first time, James and I are both PhD students ourselves. We do a lot of paper reading for our own research. And so we thought that we would start this podcast as a way of sharing our love for science and for reading papers with anyone else who wants to learn about discoveries affecting us all. We are the paper boys. Well, first of all, we just want to say thank you to everyone who's listening. Uh, We really appreciate when people reach out to us. So please check out our Twitter and our Instagram at PaperboysPod. You can shoot us a tweet or check out all the content we post. Oftentimes on there, you see a lot of cool science stories that we aren't necessarily going to make episodes about, but um, are cool to read about anyway. So go ahead and check that out. At PaperboysPod is our handle and share it with a friend, please. If you are listening to this episode, Definitely feel free to reach out too. We love hearing from our listeners, finding out where you're listening to the episodes, whether it's in your lab, on the beach, on an airplane. Let us know unless it's not safe to text us while you're on the airplane, in which case wait until you've landed and then let us know. (laughs) Yeah. And make sure you put your tray table up. Yes. Most importantly. (laughs) So side note, James and I are recording this remotely from each other and James doesn't even have internet. And so we are doing this crazy contraption of a recording setup right now i think we both have probably three sets of headphones on each and i've got about 20 cables running across my desk right now so this is quite an interesting setup we've got going i like to imagine that this is probably how they used to record podcasts like in the 18th or 17th century you know before the internet was a thing yeah just sort of like podcasting by candlelight yeah this is how einstein's podcast was recorded actually wow when he developed relativity yeah, we're walking, we're, we're really standing on the shoulders of giants with this attempt here. A hundred years ago today. <laughs> Actually, we're like literally at a hundred years for Einstein's Sir Arthur Eddington proving Einstein. Maybe we'll have to do a bonus episode on that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I think next week is the hundred year anniversary of, uh, and you mentioned this a bunch on the show, that experiment where they proved that relativity was real, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just read a book about this too, so I'm really excited, but I should probably temper this and stay focused on the episode at hand before the synthetic E. coli bugs take over all of our lettuce and spinach. Okay, well, okay. So teasers about future episodes aside, uh, what is the deal with this synthetic genome stuff? What is, first of all, what does that even mean? So the last probably 10 years, people have made a lot of progress on essentially artificially making dna 
And so recently in the news, I mean, this came out, I think May 15th in Nature, a group from the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, United Kingdom, synthesized the largest genome ever that's consisting of like 4 million base pairs. Okay, wait, so is this like a totally new thing? I mean, this obviously came up in the news a bunch, right? Yeah, yeah. So people have been synthetically creating DNA for over a decade now. I think 2008 was when scientists created the first synthetic bacterial genome. So you can imagine a bacteria with its DNA. I think the entire DNA sequence in that was synthetically made and inserted into a bacteria. What makes this a big deal, though, is it's the largest. And there's some cool tweaks that they actually did to the DNA, too. So it's not just replicating the genome, but also modifying it. Whoa. Okay. So now it is sounding a little a little uh, dystopian. Yeah, it's Gen- definitely all this genetic engineering and, you know. Yeah. So um, in popular news, Stat News came out with an article that said, with a, quote, recoded bacteria genome made from scratch, scientists give life a new dictionary. Recoded? Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I'll talk about that some more. It's super cool. Okay. Science Daily had an article, scientists create first synthetic bacterial genome. Largest chemically defined structure synthesized in the lab. Not a super exciting title, but I guess it gets to the point. <laughs> um, New York Times said, scientists created bacteria with a synthetic genome. Is this artificial life? Ooh. Ooh. Posing an interesting question there. Yeah. I better click and find out. <laughs> oh, fall into the trap. So there's actually this thing called uh, Betteridge's Law of Headlines that states, any headline that ends in a question mark can be answered by the word no. And we've taken flack online about this for some of our uh, from some, for some of our podcast episode titles, specifically the one because they all end in question marks because they're all question marks, specifically the one that was yeah. does negative mass explain dark matter? And I, I posted that online somewhere and everyone just replied with that with a Wikipedia page of Betteridge's law of headlines. And I was like, <laughs> all right, calm down. <laughs> That's such a Reddit like troll move. Yeah, it's such like a contrarian thing. But it just makes me think, you know, this news article you just read off asked the question of, does this mean we can create artificial life? And it's like I bet ah. when you click on it, the answer is probably, well, probably not. <laughs> it's very like, it's very qualified. Yeah, exactly. But I am curious, like what the qualification, what the uh, caveats there are. So you started to tell me a little bit about this synthetic genome thing. Um, all I really understand about genomes, well, I won't even say understand, all I really have heard about genomes is that we are able to sequence them, which as I understand it, is just like you've read in the DNA and you, I don't know, turn it into a sequence of letters or something on a computer. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's probably at the base of it. And I'm not the most qualified person in the world to be talking about genetics and synthesis of artificial genomes. But Um, From what I understand, yes, like we know how to sequence them. So DNA is made up of four different bases, guanine, cytosine, adenine, and thymine, or G-C-A-N-T, as you probably remember from biology class. Oh, yeah. And (laughs) from like forever ago. I haven't thought about that in literally decades, decades. Freshman year of high school or something. 
So G bonds with C, A bonds with T. And that is how DNA is made. But then if you go one step further, like another level of abstraction, they talk about the genetic code. And this is used to actually translate this genetic material into proteins. And in this case, these bases are organized into triplets that are called codons. So each triplet is a codon, and these codons specify which amino acid will be added next during protein synthesis. Wait, when so you can imagine you get like A, T, and G together, and that codes a specific amino acid. Oh, okay. So is the codon, you said it's like a triplet of bases. Does that mean that there is a corresponding triplet that pairs to those three bases, or are these three somehow like connected to each other? So they're connected to each other, but I think when DNA is being used to create proteins, if I understand this correctly, if you're listening and you understand it better than I do, definitely let us know. But I think no, no, the James, DNA you're the expert un- here. You're presenting. <laughs> <laughs> Send us mean hate mail. Um, <laughs> no, but I think so. The DNA is unzipped, and even if you have a binding pair on the other side, they'll code, they'll synthesize different proteins. And the reason I think this is because, um, so you have a codon, and there's four possibilities for each of the bases. So that gives you 64 possible proteins that it could synthesize, or amino acids, sorry. But there's some, like, redundancy. Okay, so it's, it's, so it's the, the specific ordering of these three bases that makes a codon. Yeah, and they're read in a specific order, so like ATG is not the same as GTA. Okay, so so pardon me if this is a bad analogy, but it almost sounds like, you know, the bases are like bits on a computer, like ones and zeros. And then if you organize them in specific orders of four bits, you can make a byte, and each byte can be different from each other, even though they're made up of the same bases. And then you combine those bytes to make some larger operation in a computer. Is that a good analogy? Yeah, yeah, except a computer uses like binary and this would be like base four, you could think of it. Because there's um, four different letters that you can order. Yeah. Okay. So that's how I understand it. I'm that's sure that I, I just pissed it. off a bunch of biologists and computer scientists simultaneously, but... Well, so it's interesting you bring that up. I mean, you probably did. I'm not denying <laughs> that, but... Thanks for um, the support. I guess I should actually say what the title of this paper is. So when I was reading this paper, um, which is titled... Total Synthesis of E. coli with a Recoded Genome by Julius Friedens, Kai Heng Wang, Daniel De La Torre, Louise H. Funky, Wesley E. Robert Scona, and Jason W. Chin from the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge. So when I was reading this paper, it's interesting because the actual language that they use to describe like the length of these DNA sequences, they talk about it in like mega bases and they abbreviate it lowercase mb which no like, way from communication theory and data storage you know like megabit megabyte it's kind of cool it's gotten to the point where they're like quantitatively talking about these genomes and you know to the untrained reader like myself it the language itself starts mirroring like communication theory and information theory that's it's really cool. cool so i wonder if like that will start to become the measure of comparison among like groups that are doing this type of research like oh they created a three megabase genome and like oh but did you see the new breakthrough where they had they made a 10 megabase genome something like that i mean it already is in this case this is like that is like one of the selling points in their article when they're talking about why it's novel they're like 
this is a four times increase in the number of bases synthetically generated in a lab. Whoa. Okay. From the previous edition. Wait, just so, just so that I, because, you know, I just spit out those totally made up numbers there. Just for context, <laughs> how long is, so you said that they're, they're doing a synthesis of an E. coli genome. How, how long is it actually? So this is four megabases. So there are four million base pairs that they had to synthetically create. And this is a big deal. That's a lot. And it's a lot of the actual technical material of the paper is talking about how they combined them together successfully. So like nowadays you can actually just order synthetic DNA from different labs. But as I understand it, you can't just, um, like you couldn't just get a 4 million base pair piece of synthetic DNA. You have to break it down into smaller chunks that are maybe like 10,000 bases long. And then it's a lot of effort to figure out a way to efficiently recombine them to create this like full genome. I see. So that that's because of the way of... it's unzipped. I think that's a kind of a hand wavy explanation. But I see. But so then, so their breakthrough is really the technique that they've used to put together these codons, as opposed to I would say necessarily that just having spit out something longer than everyone else. That is half of it. Okay. The other half where this gets like pretty science fiction-y is they also modified the genome from what occurs naturally and were able to create a bacteria that like is still alive and reproduces. But I thought that we already could do that. I thought that the, like CRISPR and all these other genetic modification techniques were. Is this just a new way of doing that or? So they do. Yeah, they, we have genetically modified species like you see it in agriculture. We have had a mosquito episode that's talked about it. Like, that's pretty common. What's different here, though, is that, you know, we were talking about those codons and that there's some redundancy, right? So there's 64 different codons that are possible, but they really only encode 21 different things, if I understood it correctly. There are 20 amino acids, and then there's this stop sequence that they can encode as well. Oh, okay. So, so, so some of them do the same thing as each other. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And it's not, people have looked into that and there are subtleties. Like maybe one codon is used to generate an amino acid called serine and another also generates serine, but with slightly different properties in how it folds. Like the folding of DNA and RNA is really important in how they're expressed from what I understand. So there's like, it's not just the amino acid itself that's important. But we've been looking recently into how. Like, why are they redundant? Because if you get rid of some of that redundancy, you can start doing a lot more. And this is a long-winded way of explaining that basically these researchers went in and deleted some of the redundancy. Huh. Why would they want to do that, though? So two main reasons. First is these codons are the building blocks of life. So it's like going into a computer program and messing with the source code. Like, you could see... You know, from our human understanding, we're like, oh, these two functions are like very similar. What if I delete this one? And like normally in other studies that they cited, like you delete the function that looks really similar and then your program crashes and gives you an error. Which that means would be that like, they killed whatever organism they were working with. Yeah. Yeah. So toying with these codons, replacing these redundant codons, it's a way of trying to figure out what's really necessary. And what this opens up in the future, if we have this understanding, is not only 
a better feel for what are the nuances behind these redundant codons, but also how could we then generate like these now seemingly futuristic organisms that have the ability to code like more than 20 different amino acids for like agriculture or pharmaceutical applications. You know, if you don't have all this redundancy, like if you only use 21 codons to encode the 20 amino acids and the stop sequence, that gives you 43 other codons that you can use to synthesize other things. So it has huge implications for the future of synthetic biology. Wait, so, okay, I think I'm now understanding like why this is useful. So it's all coming full circle, like back to the... It's only taking me 30 minutes to convince you. (laughs) No, no, no. Going, you know, going back to the like computer science analogy, it's like they have these three bases that can be combined in 64 different ways, but a lot of those are redundant. But because they only have four bases to work with, they can't make anything beyond those 64. There are literally like physically there are only 64 combinations of the four bases. Yes. Yes. So it's sometimes- like a hard limit in terms of how many codons they can can physically ever exist. Yeah, and that's a great point. And so within those 64 possibilities, sometimes you have like six or seven different codons that only make serine or one of the other amino acids. And so that's just like a huge waste of those codons. From our perspective, I mean, I think nature finds a good use for it. But yeah, yeah. But but it would be like it would be like if, you know, out of the whatever, 16 different combinations of four bits in a row that you can make. If like half of those produced the letter F and the other half produced the letter J, it'd be like, well, well, we've got 16 options here. How come we can only make two letters out of it? Yeah. Yeah. Or it's like if, you know, we have a 26 letter alphabet. What if 10 of those letters gave you the sound K or B, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Like serve the same purpose. And it's like, well, why do we have these? Yes. And, you know, I think part of it is we just don't understand or fully appreciate, I guess, the nuance in it. But all of this research is contributing to that knowledge of like, oh, like you don't want to mess with these codons, even though they're redundant, they give you very different effects. It's not just the amino acid. But what this research shows is like, there are at least a couple that you can mess with and completely remove. So, you know, we were talking about like, why is this research different? They completely removed several of these codons from the entire genome. Wow. And that's that's like a new thing. That's a breakthrough. That has never been done. And, it, you know, it's like, wow, it's hard. They had to go through the entire the entire genome and remove these. And they, they hit some different like roadblocks, too, that were kind of interesting. This, this is crazy. It's almost like they're just kind of going through and cleaning it up. You know, they're like the little birds in the alligator's mouth, like picking out all the stuff, <laughs> all the stuff that's left over from whatever billionaires of evolution that got us here. They're just taking out these kind of unnecessary codons. Yeah. I wonder if that's like a really bad thing that we will later regret if we ever do that to ourselves or if it's like a really good thing like, oh, it turns out that that codon caused cancer at a really high rate. I mean, it's exciting probably because there's that aspect of fear that's involved and the unknown, right? Yeah. I mean, it could be really promising or like really detrimental. I mean, it sounds like it would spawn kind of a whole new almost area of research of Okay, what happens when you take these codons out of this particular organism? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you start to play with the building blocks of life on like a small level. Yeah. And to see that this organism, I think we mentioned it before, but it's really important to reiterate, the E. coli 
bacteria that they resynthesized, or not resynthesized, but you know, the E. coli with the synthetic genome that they created is alive. Like it's slightly different than a normal E. coli uh, bacteria. I think it's like maybe a little slower to reproduce and it might eat a little slower, but, and you know, every minute is pure agony. <laughs> it begs for the, the sweet kiss of death. Kill every me. moment it lives. Kill me. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like the end of the fly or something. Yes. You would bring up the fly, Charlie. Oh man. It's my favorite, least favorite movie. Yes. Great. Graphic. Side note. If anyone here has not seen the fly with Jeff Goldblum, you need to go watch that right now. Come to- I think he was missing a few codons. Let's just say that much. Yeah. Oh. Come to think of it, Jeff Goldblum's been in like some, you know, pretty foundational films about the effects of bioengineering. Yes, the about fly, genetics. Jurassic Park. Yes. Maybe it's only two. Life uh, finds a way. <laughs> we definitely got to <laughs> put that audio clip in here, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. Anyway, back to this synthetic genome stuff so i feel like we've talked a lot about kind of like what they did here but i still am not really understanding how they did it what is their actual technique like how did they reach this particular breakthrough yeah so again if you're a synthetic biologist you're probably listening and you're not going to be satisfied in the level of detail that i go in but for us peons um james you gotta come at this with confidence tell everyone you're actually getting your phd in synthetic bioengineering biology. Yeah. yeah nothing to do with synthetic biology <laughs> electrical engineering is close enough right well so there are actually electrical engineering faculty in our department who do like data storage with dna and look at the information theory aspect of it oh that's really cool yeah but i don't work with them <laughs> so i mentioned earlier that given the size of this genome they couldn't just order it synthetically what they ended up having to do is use this technique called convergent synthesis that's pretty common in chemistry. It's a way of increasing the yield of your chemical reactions. So instead of just like, you know, you have like A, B, C, and D, and you put them all together and that yields E, you essentially like mix A and B together first and C and D together first. And then you mix those together and it improves your yield if you actually look at the math. Huh. Okay. So what they did was they took the entire E. coli genome. They call it like the wild genome that you would find in the species. And they broke it into... I love that. It makes it sound like these E. coli are like out on the range as opposed to like hiding in your Chipotle burrito somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's like wild born. I was thinking about like Game of Thrones when I was reading this. Yeah. Like in the wild for E. coli is just in a harmful place. You take the free folk DNA and you (laughs) break it into nine pieces. Um, Yeah. But... The E. folk. (laughs) The E. folk. (laughs) So, well, they actually did break this into nine pieces. And then what they did was they used CRISPR, actually. CRISPR Ooh, makes, our old rears pal. its ugly head again. Okay. And for each of the wild-born DNA sequences, they replaced a section of it. And then they used this technique called REXER, R-E-X-E-R, which stands for, I have to look it up. It's CRISPR's lesser-known brother. Yeah. The, it's brother that's locked in the basement because it could disrupt the whole ecosystem stands for replicon excision enhanced recombination to actually start recombining these uh like wild genomes with small sections that had been synthesized and then they did this iteratively and this 
it was a term that they dubbed Genesis, which is like makes sense, Ooh. but uh, gotta feel like they're playing a little bit with historical fire there. Yeah, that's a dangerous term to start using. I'm actually surprised that none of like the news headlines said anything like scientists play God with new synthetic Genesis. Yeah, so the Stat News article actually did say something funny about that, though. Oh, yeah? They were talking about Genesis and the technique, and they made some comment that, like, and of course they called it that. You know, something. Yeah. Just yeah, tongue-in-cheek. But So they're basically just using this convergent synthesis technique, but in this case, what they're doing is they're kind of applying their synthetic genome just to, like, a little part of a bunch of different E. coli genomes, and then they're kind of combining... You said they had nine different ones, so maybe they combine like one and two, and then they combine three and four, and and then they combine one plus two with three plus four with the the second half of them. And sorry, that was I think I explained that more poorly than you did, but <laughs> but it's almost so it's, like it's yeah. almost like a you know a cup stacking game, you know, like yeah, you just keep you start from the top and then you keep going down until they're all put together in one thing. Yes, yep, and I may have said that wrong. I think I said nine. I'm looking at my notes and it says 37, but long story short, they, they broke this genome down into different pieces. And just like you said, for each of these pieces, they added a small piece of synthetic DNA. And what happened was in recombining it through this gen- Genesis technique, at the end, you had a fully synthetic piece. Okay. And so is that because they were using this approach, that's how they were able to get something so much longer than their colleagues have gotten? I believe so. Yeah. I'm not sure if people have tried to do something on the same order of size like e coli's genome but for some reason up until now people have only been able to achieve about 1 million base pairs and this group achieved 4 million wow and part of that too is like what they found was when they were replacing some of these codons in the dna they actually interfered i think with some of the key i'm not sure what the correct word is but there's like some structural parts in the dna that don't necessarily synthesize just amino acids um they kind of play with how dna recombines and folds together so i think in replacing some of the codons they messed with that so another key technique that they talked about in the paper that didn't quite come up as much in the popular news is their ability to go back detect these anomalies and sort of recode them to fix them wait messed with it meaning like they messed it up or that was an intentional thing that they did that allowed them to do this successfully this was unintentional it's like you're going through code that you're looking at and you're trying to change some computation and you end up messing up some other function that's called and everything falls apart <laughs> so they actually they had a pretty interesting section talking about how they debugged this but huh so kind of like in the real genesis you know when god was creating the waterfalls and and the the unicorns he also kind of accidentally created like naked mole rats and <laughs> and ended like up causing yeah. the anthropocene and era. like millipedes you know <laughs> yeah and mosquitoes oh yeah okay yeah all right I, I think i understand these scientists were really playing god <laughs> yeah yeah i don't think they made a snake but <laughs> they they did make e coli so yeah they're trying to poison us all yeah so this sounds crazy like i mean this is a field i didn't even know existed and honestly sounds like it's kind of a new field anyway but now i'm just sort of my head is the wheel, the gears are turning, trying to think of like what is the application of this, but I just don't know. Like, what are they hoping to do by creating these synthetic genomes? I mean, so it's a gr- it's a great question. You know, we talked about 
by freeing up codons, you could now create synthetic bacteria that could make anything. Like they could make different amino acids, they could make they could be used to create different enzymes for chemical reactions. So by figuring out which codons are redundant and can be removed while still keeping an organism alive, this is a big first step in making that real. So just as an example from the Stat News article, this guy, Tom Ellis, who was an expert who reviewed the paper, he said, nature has given us all these enzymes that can do all these funky tasks, from making cheese to extracting fruit juice, producing biofuels and industrial chemicals, and even detecting biomarkers, biomarkers in medical tests. That's from just 20 amino acids. Think what you could do with 22 amino acids or more. There's the potential for making all sorts of new chemicals for medicine, food production, or even different industries. So I think his quote sums it up pretty well. Okay, so the real like far off implication is that by freeing up those redundant codons, we are potentially able to like create new ones and create new functions for them. I mean, does this actually mean that like we could create new life forms at some point, like things that are unique? I mean, obviously, I'm sure they would be based on something already there. Yeah, but it gives us one more tool in the toolbox, basically. So you could almost imagine like an industry of the future where we use bacteria to generate a lot of the things that we need. I mean, which is basically like what we've done for millions of or thousands, millions of years up until now. But then uh, now we could just make these organisms that are much more efficient than many of the industrial things that we've done. So you're saying that I could get the perfect sourdough culture? Yeah, potentially. I mean, so they're actually working on this with yeast cultures. They've done, I think, two of the 16 chromosomes for yeast, baker's yeast. I don't know oh, if that's, that's really the same cool. for sourdough. But uh, I, feel like, I feel like the next breakthrough will be like, you know, we'll see a headline about this in three years that's like, Scientist baked a loaf of bread with synthetic yeast. How cool would it be to, to be the like leading author on that? Have that be your PhD dissertation? And you show up to oh, your man, defense with amazing. Like, fresh baked bread. A loaf of, yeah, synthetic yeast bread. That would be sick. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, that's actually a good example, though. But a lot of those bacteria can be harmed by viral infections. So you could think about making oh. synthetic bacteria that carry out the same purpose but are impervious to these viruses. Which would save, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in pharmaceutical and great. agricultural yeah, applications. It's, it's great enough. It's good enough that they're already resistant to antibiotics. Now let's make them resistant to viruses. Yeah. What harm could that cause? It's <laughs> yeah. like bacteria are just gonna overrun the world once science gets to a like a certain point. Yeah. It's just gonna they're just gonna get away from us. There was a great Simpsons episode about that. Like I think they go to Australia and there's like the frog problem. And so they're like, oh, Let's just solve the frog problem by introducing a bunch of snakes, which I think is actually based on a real, <laughs> I think it's based on reality. <laughs> yeah. Now you got a big snake problem. <laughs> Good. Well, I hope that we haven't just, you know, totally fear-mongered and or said completely wrong things for half of this episode. But if you get anything from this episode, I think it's that you should be craving the perfect piece of synthetic sourdough bread. Yes. That's I the mean, real I already am. Yeah. This, the second real takeaway is that James and I are not biologists, and uh, we hopefully hopefully we were able to get some info across here. I mean, I, I understood what you were saying, but I don't really know if you knew what you were talking about. So, I mean, I can justify it in my head. I'm excited to hear from our biology-inclined listeners what was wrong or not, but 
um, truthfully, I mean, it was a, it was a really interesting paper to read. And, you know, the, I think all these nature and science papers, like it's pretty much a guarantee that they're going to be well-written. They're like the most refined journal papers out there. Oh yeah, for sure. Well-written, hard, sometimes hard to really understand the science though. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, you know, this, this was two years of work. And one of the criticisms is like, you know, this is a private company that was doing the work. So it's like sort of out of the budget for many university labs, but they boiled this down into six pages. So you're like, eh, there's a lot of information wow. that they just couldn't put in there. But the yeah, a lot of good supplemental figures and great explanations. So at least I could. Yeah, I'm always super impressed by how they're able to how they're able to boil those down for the these big name journals. Yeah, it's really impressive. Every single word is like critical, which is cool to see. Uh, yeah, it kind of pains you to think of like being the grad student who's kind of writing it. Like, how much really cool, important stuff did they have to cut out? You know. Yeah, yeah. Some poor student who was like, that was my paragraph. Yeah, stuff that they probably spent like six months trying to figure out and like solve a particular problem had to get totally cut out of the paper because like it's ultimately not that important to the audience. Yeah, I mean, literally, you look at like a paragraph of the paper and there are like five citations and you're like, there were five authors on each of those citations who like each got their PhD from that work. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, it's I mean, it's all really, really cool nonetheless. And if you... The listeners are interested in checking out this paper for yourself. James said it's only six pages. Hopefully, some of you can try and crack it yourselves. We'll post it on our website, paperboyspodcast.com, as well as some of these news articles and, I don't know, maybe some clips from The Fly and Jurassic Park. (laughs) Maybe just a Jeff Goldblum compilation on there. Uh, Again, check that out on our website, paperboyspodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please do follow us on social media. Our handle is at paperboyspod. We're on Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us, paperboyspodcast.com. If you check out our website too, we've also updated the merch. We have great t-shirts, tote bags, coffee mugs, anything that you could think about putting a Paperboys logo on. It's up there. Check it out. Join us again next week for another exciting edition of Paperboys.